Welcome to The Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. I'm Sam Rosaldo, and I believe that good government matters, like, a lot. Oh, me too. I'm Abram Garrett, and I believe that complicated problems never have simple solutions. Oh, me too. If you work in a bureaucracy like we do, or if you care about bureaucracies, then we think you'll get a lot out of our podcast. The Radical Bureaucrat. Today we're talking to Noliwe Rooks, author of Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. Noliwe Rooks is the Director of American Studies at Cornell University and was for 10 years the Associate Director of African American Studies at Princeton University. She's the author of four books, including White Money, Black Power, and Hair Raising, and she lives in Ithaca, New York. Yeah, I really appreciated some of the vivid stories that Naliwe tells in her book and on our call. Um, it's really, really powerful stuff. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you all who are listening are going to have some really clear takeaways about what it means to be a radical bureaucrat. Yeah, like really, really clear <laughs> takeaways. All right, why don't we get started? Great. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. We are here uh, with Dr. Noliwe Rooks, uh, Director of American Studies at Cornell University and the author of Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us today. You. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're really excited. In the beginning of the book, you describe an experience that you say became common during your time at Princeton, where uh, white students from affluent backgrounds would come to talk to you about wanting to get into education because education was the civil rights issue of our time. You can't see it, but we're making air quotes right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <A> special <laughs> yeah. emphasis. Could you start by describing those conversations and how they motivated this book project? Yeah, I mean, I I, I was actually um, surprised at, at uh, the kinds of students. Once I started teaching classes about education, once I started a you know educational program that was in Trenton, and started people started to know that I was doing stuff with urban education. The the uh, students who started to seek me out really did change, um, and one of the notable things was um, all of these uh, affluent overwhelmingly white, um, eager and committed students who would come and sort of say, yes, you know, uh, education is the civil rights movement of our time and a child's zip code should not determine their, their <laughs> educational outcome. And mm -hmm. education is not just one size fits all. And um, this is the new civil rights movement. And the first, you know, five or 10 times, you know, people came in were talking to me, I was really kind of like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is, it's so great that people who, you know, <laughs> consistently tell me I went to public schools where, um, you know, if we had some, some, we didn't have many poor kids, usually they would say, but if we right. had some black or Latino kids, you know, they weren't in the classes with us, so, so my eyes weren't open. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, we went to private school, these things weren't issues, but we've come here to Princeton and discovered this, this this gross civil rights wrong mm -hmm. um, and want to, to fix it. And I really initially thought that it was almost like the Mississippi Freedom Summer, which is, a you know, when you had a lot right. of affluent mm -hmm. college students yeah. go to Mississippi to fight for voting rights. And I was like, wow, something has it. happened. Something happening. is in the water at Princeton, you yeah. know, and, and it started a whole movement and all of the white kids are now wanting to run into urban areas. 
Um, but the more conversations that I would have and the more questioning that I would do, the thing that would became a, um, a sticking point to me wasn't so much that these kids had never really uh, uh, gone to schools that were facing the kinds of issues they wanted to, to change, because not many kids end up at Princeton who come from schools like that. So sure. that wasn't surprising um, to me. But what became surprising was um, how often I would hear that they had never even been in, like they had dedicated their life to eradicating educational injustice and, and to helping these vulnerable students, but they, they'd never actually been to um, neighborhoods like this. They mm-hmm. never talked to caregivers. They rarely talked to kids unless they were on some kind of tour, often in either Philly or Newark, um, of a charter school. Um, mm-hmm. That became like that became their one sort of lens, their one sort of understanding of communities and what what was needed to change them were these tours to charter schools and. Um, and again, you know, at least initially, I was kind of like, well, at least the charter schools are converting them, and they want to take their privilege and fight for other things. But, you know, again, with more conversation, it became clear not only had they never been in these neighborhoods, they didn't actually think that um, the the students and grandparents and caregivers and foster parents, they didn't actually think that they needed to talk to any people in the neighborhood outside mm-hmm. of the tours they were going on mm-hmm. as they thought about what they should do. And it never occurred to them, um, to the people I talked with, um, that there was something very kind of scripted and staged about your whole understanding of an entire, you know, past and present for um, a community, for a group of people, was based on um, a couple of trips Mm. where you were just uh, amazed and blown away by how orderly everyone is. This is what I would consistently hear. Mm. They were enthusiastic and they were orderly. It Mm. wasn't anything like we were told public schools where that must mean that this form of educational reform, you know, is the right answer. Right, like that, it was that leap that they were making because this looks so different from everything anyone else has ever told me. It must be the answer. Wow. And no, we don't need to talk to anyone. And in fact, they were almost hostile to the idea, or dismissive is probably a better word than hostile, um, of the idea that there was something deeply wrong um, with going into someone's community and not talking to either the adults or the students there mm. who were most impacted by what you had just recently discovered existed. Um, and then come away with that, with not making any effort to meet people with um, grand pronouncements like I, I would hear, but they just don't care about education. Mm. Um, they, oh. They're not invested in it. They don't, this, their schools wouldn't look like this if they cared about it. There's no reason to, they're part of the problem in a way. It may not be their fault, but they're part of the problem because they're not, you know, advocating for what we're advocating for. So, um, after a year or so of that, um, and then some other things that were going on, kind of culturally, the uh, like the the release of Waiting for Superman the year right. before, mm-hmm. I really started working on this, which is a film that almost mirrored exactly what my students were coming saying. I mean, all, the same language, the same view, the same. Um, and then uh, uh, the the Obama administration released Race to the Top. That, that made educational policy out of um, a lot of these same interventions, more charter schools, more alternatively certified teachers, or holding teachers accountable in ways that, that open the door for different kinds of teachers to come into 
to these kinds of neighborhoods. Um, so the, all of that kind of coalesced between what I was hearing from the students and what I started just sort of seeing and picking up and um, becoming aware of. And it was so at variance with the thing that I knew to be true, which is there are few, there are poor people care deeply about the education of their children, and they always have. Right. Um, that doesn't translate to political power. That doesn't translate into um, you know the ability to to fight and, and organize and make the changes that need to be made. But they care, and so that I was hearing so much that just seemed to be we need to come in and fix this because the people who are there have abdicated responsibility. I think that mm-hmm. was the beginning um, of of what became Cutting School. That was a hot fire introduction <laughs> to this interview. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I never, I don't think I ever made the connection that um, the ways in which you sort of implement the like silent hallways and strict discipline yeah. stuff, that that would be a teacher recruitment tool. I don't think that I realized that that sort of speaks, and a funder recruitment. Yeah, tool. and a funder recruitment. I didn't yeah. realize that that. I mean, I I thought it was just about like getting the outcome results or whatever. But I realized that if you've if you've lived your whole life thinking that like dangerous minds is what a school looks like in the yeah. city. Yeah. Uh, or stand and deliver or whatever, yeah. right? That it's this wild thing. Yeah. And then you go into this place, it's so impressive. And like, yeah. you don't have yeah. any other frame of reference. I don't think I ever made that connection. You know, I could go many different ways with this, but the thing that I wanted to ask you was, you talk so much about uh, the obvious uh, blind spot of not not only not wanting, but not thinking that there was any need to ask uh, community members about what they wanted and what they needed. Um, what role should community engagement play in creating education policy? I mean, you, you talked a lot about what's missing, but but what would be added if these students had been asking those questions? Well, so here's the thing. I, I, and I'm not, I, I have not been in every school district, um, every state, you know, to talk to people, but those that I have been in, um, there are always groups of folks, some are teachers, some are alternative, some are hostile toward, toward traditional public schools, but have come up with alternative models. There's always this vibrant conversation about what needs to happen. And there's also a lot of community memory about the programs that have worked. Some of that goes back to the 60s and 70s and comes out of the war on poverty and, mm-hmm. you know, black independent schools. You'll have people who, if they've been in the, those communities for a long time, will go back to, you know, but I remember this one school that took everybody and did amazing things and then they got, you know, put, put out. Or you'll have lifelong teachers who grew up in those communities um, who can tell you every misstep um, that was made that hindered progress um, or hindered new, I, I, I want to say innovation, but I'm hesitant to use that term because it's been totally co-opted <laughs> by, by other folks and mm-hmm. means something very particular in this moment. Um, but what I literally mean are new ideas that did not involve dismantling the entire school system, but things that worked. Um, and if you believe that there's no one there who knows anything, who can tell you anything, who's smart enough to achieve results, because you're looking at the outcome of a, of a systemic issue, mm-hmm. um, then, then what happens is what we've seen happen. Um, you you engage the community, you involve the community if you want that community to win. Um, when you don't really care about them winning when you want to win, then it's perfectly mm. fine to leave them out of the conversation. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I was. Uh, I just actually last night got back from a conference, the Comparative International Education Society conference, um, and one of the big threads of that conference is this idea of indigenous knowledges, that like people, indigenous people, and even in like what you're describing is a kind of indigenous knowledge, right? In this community, mm-hmm. there is uh, knowledge that for generations has been passed passed down right um and and yeah that speaks so powerfully to what you're saying like if you don't think that there's any knowledge or value then you know that that has more to do with your sort of framing and worldview than it has to do with the presence of knowledge in the neighborhood you're going into Exactly. exactly um so i wanted to shift a little bit here and uh and i think one of the one of the major sort of contributions of the book perhaps because it's a really clever portmanteau is is the idea of segregonomics right or, mm. or uh, seg- uh, economics driven by segregation I think it is, mm-hmm. is roughly what it is um, but if, if you could um, just give us a, a, a brief explanation of uh, w- what is segregonomics and like maybe how do we spot when like segregonomics is probably what's happening in front of us well, I mean, I think the short so the short answer is like like as you said. I mean, what I call segregonomics, and it's based on going back to the the beginning of taxpayer supported public education following the Civil War. At every moment, um, for all of the decrying of segregation, for all of the reports, like going again back to the 1890s, 1910, 1920. I mean, this idea of of segregation, um, racial and economic segregation, um, as something that uh, benefited whites in the early period. The benefit for it was was a, about how white communities were able to thrive and be healthier, be be more God fearing and Christian if they were not contaminated by this. But there was mm-hmm. this idea that that you had to keep, you know, poor people away from wealthy people and people of color away from white folks. And so um, uh, the thing that that struck me though is that there were always philanthropists and um, businesses that that came up with ways to address educational uh, under education of these populations that they often thrive like and so while I while when I began the book in, in 2010 like I told you I was right in the middle of you know teach for America rise of charter school charter management organizations virtual schools like all of this stuff that we see today um, was was really just taking off like really really taking flight um, and and I started to, to ask, well, why is it that all of these companies are making all of this money? Like, why is it that, that this seems to be such an, a successful strategy? I have so many students who, by the time um, um, I left Princeton in 2012, it was not even that they were trying to go into Teach for America or in charter schools. They had discovered uh, venture funds. Uh, and venture capital that would allow them to begin their own companies um, having to do with education. So the pipeline was not just sort of the direct service delivery. Mm -hmm. Um, It had really morphed into this whole other ecosystem. Um, But all of it seemed to me to these companies seem to be thriving and it was a business model that encouraged them like get out there and say you're going to fix this problem because nobody knows I fix it anyway so just say you're going to fix it um, and go forward and then find some money and you too can you know get a, be a part of the kind of startup culture mm-hmm. um, but I, I the, the thing that again from the 1890s forward to that moment to this moment 
It, it is the, the education and the undereducation of these communities um, and the life trajectories of the folks who are supposed to be helped. That seemed to be pretty much static. Um, there were always exceptions, like there were always some kids who were helped um, in every period by some form of this, but overwhelmingly. Um, the 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 only thing that I could find that actually did that systemically that helped folks not just because there was one amazing principal in one school, one amazing teacher over here, um, really was integration, um, mm -hmm. large scale if if economic or um, uh, racial integration, and it, it and that's a whole other story. But but I can't say that well. But this thing has worked. Um, we know it. We know it empirically. There's really no debate about it having worked to address the issues that current educational reformers are calling the civil rights issue of our time. Like all of the things, the, the ecosystem of stuff that, that ed reform is supposed to fix, we know that by and large, large-scale integration projects fix it. Um, and yet, we keep running in directions away from that, and some folks are getting very wealthy from it, and kids are still undereducated. And so looking at that um, uh, with a long view, uh, I, it, it just it just it, it hit me that, you know, what if one of the reasons this is so hard for us to solve this issue of education and, you know, our our consistent rediscovery of how difficult it is to educate kids, um, when they're educated separately from from wealth, from from the folks with money, like mm -hmm. it's difficult. Like it's difficult to to consistently sustain results. So, but what if part of the reason that that's true is that some folks are simply profiting right. from that segregation? It's an entire business. Like right now, the um, edu business, as folks call it, is is second only to the to healthcare as a growth market. Um, but it doesn't depend on actually showing that you can educate anyone. You need a good argument and you need someone to fund it. Um, and that seems to me, and I mean, from what I could find, that really only happens in communities, for communities that are, uh, you know, of color and uh, poor. So, uh, yeah, so I wanted to put that on the table. Like, you know, if you're going to profit from it, let's let's call it what it is. Say that you're trying to profit from it. And I believe the only way that you're going to fix it. Um, really is to have consequences for folks who profit from taxpayer dollars showing zero results, but that are dependent on segregation in order to flourish. I think, though, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about it since since the last election, um, the the bubbles that we all live in. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. that I mean we I, I mean since I'm in New York right now we tend to think that everybody but us is in a bubble, um, <laughs> but I think that they're just bubbles right. we all live the in. The nature and... of our bubbles is that we think we're the only ones not in a bubble. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Many of the people who are setting these policies, who are being drawn in, who are talking about this, have grown up in similar bubbles all across the country. One of the things that um, at least in the early days of TFA, just to stick with that, you know, they were really focused on a handful of schools. Um, so Ivy League and, you know, plus Chicago, Stanford, you know, like mm -hmm. like the, the uh, highly selective school. Um, and I always used to say when I was at Princeton is that, you know, their admissions department is amazing in picking the same kind of student across race, across gender and across geography. Mm. Um, 
those students shared qualities, and I want to say that that's probably true elsewhere. I know at Cornell it's true, like for the two Ivy League places that I've taught. Um, admissions folks are really amazing at getting very similar kinds of folks, even though they're diverse. Yep. Um, and so none of them, as, they, as you start off, you, if you're reinforcing your beliefs um, about um, the nature of segregation, the, the viability of change for poor people, um, if you're going to conferences, if you're going to dinner parties, I, mean, I think a lot more happens at like dinner parties, bars, and social spaces yeah. to reinforce um, specific ideas than conferences. So it's the receptions at the conferences where all the real action. Yes, yeah. yes, where you where you're talking, or you know, you like meet somebody and you're like, oh my god, rock star, let's have drinks and talk. If you're consistently hearing the same narratives over mm. and over, because you're surrounded by people who are um, coming from backgrounds that are not dissimilar. Mm-hmm. Um, though you could be talking about gender differences and racial differences, you're usually not talking about vast economic differences. Um, so it makes you believe that you just know something because everybody who you're talking to believes the same thing. Right. It's sort of like I heard, um, the one thing I heard Jared Kushner say once um, in an interview or whatever, not in person, like something I read that he, <laughs> when you that guys he were hanging wrote. Out. Yeah, having you know, drinks about after a conference. <laughs> yeah, not having drinks with he and Ivanka. But um, he's saying something like, you know, when you're in New York, you hear that, you know, uh, charter schools are good. Charter schools are good. Uh, privatization is good. It helps poor kids. It gives them blah, 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 blah. He's like, you know, but running around the country behind... Um, um, his father-in-law, he started talking to people who had a different view of some of that, and he said, you know, it was just shocking to him, because he had never heard anyone in the circles that he ran yeah. in yep. um, have a kind of critique. So I think for the cultural capital, so that's a different kind of capital. Right. That's not about a finder's feed. Um, that's about the the very smart, well-connected, successful people um, who you spend time with all believe this to be true and it looks Mm. like it's true because you're you are you know they're talking about the test scores that are coming out of their charter school um they're introducing you to the principal from some school that you know can talk about how great these these policies are um the the bubbles and the the reality of segregation and the reason that you could have people say I'm going to come in your community and tell you what's right and and be aggressive about it to not feel any shame about it is because some of us are taught and and believe and have access to power um, in ways that it does look like if I just work hard um, I I can make a difference here. Um, and I can be popular with the people I want to be popular with. So I think that the ideas, those views, really um, are an example of those bubbles and of segregation. Um, because we just don't have the opportunity very often. Any more than I'm in the South Bronx right now, any more than most of the folks here in the um, in the South Bronx have access to uh, uh, Whitney Tilson to tell them what he, they think about, you know, charter schools and privatization. Um, Whitney Tilson don't really have access to them mm-hmm. or, or the desire to, to care about what they're saying. So um, it's sort of a self... It's a, it's a, it's a, if there wasn't so much to be gained, um, when you're looking at if you want to um, be a player in the education realm, 
it, there's a lot against your having divergent views um, from what has sort of become mainstream yeah. educational policy in a way. I mean, I think Betsy DeVos is to the right of mainstream policy. Sure. I do think she's more extreme than most people are. I don't think she's on another planet the way that people want to say right. very often. Um, she wants to do more of the stuff that, you know, sort of less ideologically driven people around ed reform want to do. She just wants to be more drastic with it. You talked earlier about the white philanthropists, and uh, she right. comes from that background and is in that tradition. Um, mm -hmm. And we wanted to ask, you, you tell some really moving stories um, going back to the early history of white philanthropy in, in black education. Um, but stories of black communities sacrificing uh, in order to raise the money required by these white philanthropists to build schools. Mm -hmm. um, right. And the stories really struck us. And mm -hmm. as we were preparing for this conversation, we were seeing a lot of parallels between those stories and the systems within which we work today. And mm -hmm. we want to draw some of those parallels out. But first, can you tell one of those stories? Yeah, uh, well, the way that it works. So for people who aren't um, familiar with um, the Rosenwald Schools or General Education Board, um, there were no schools for black people in the 1920s um, in the former slaveholding um, South in rural areas, just none, at a time when still about 90% of, of black people in the South lived in rural areas. So in effect, there, there was no education for them. Um, and so these these philanthropists with names like Rockefeller and Dodge and as Dodge truck um, and uh, Eastman Kodak. You know, it's funny, I say George Eastman and, and in this day and age, because we don't do film stock that much, people don't know mm -hmm. that he had to do with like Eastman Kodak film. He was big for film. Mm -hmm. These were really rich folks. Um, uh, and they got together and for a variety of reasons having to do with their business bottom line, as well as their good feelings. Um, you know, said, well, we have got to figure out, like if we don't figure out how to educate rural black people, um, given that the South was once, and at that point was still trying to figure out how to be the economic engine for the entire nation. I mean, during the slavery period, of course, it was the economic engine for the nation because of the unpaid slave labor. Um, following emancipation, you know, there was some, some you had to figure out, well, what's going to happen now? Um, where, where's the wealth creation um, going to going to come from? Um, and part of what these philanthropists said is sort of like what you'll hear today with people saying we're not training, you know, uh, folks today for the jobs uh, of the 21st century and beyond. Like this is one of the new mm. um, usually having a tech undertone, like usually saying we need to teach coding. Um, but, you know, that the schools are outmoded. They're not teaching the kinds of skills to students that we need. So in, back in the 1920s, you heard something similar. We need, we need workers, so we're going to have to figure out how to have schools. However, white supremacy being what it was at the time, um, they knew that they could not be coming into the South and saying we want to educate black kids the same way we educate white kids. Um, that was just a non-starter in a region of the country that was self-consciously built on ideas of white 
superiority and black inferiority and that we're enshrining it in laws not even casting aspersions like so so in a region of the country where it was illegal for for states or districts to use so-called white tax tax dollars to in any way educate black students um or that that mandated that black people had to pay into school systems to educate white students and then a second tax in order to educate their kids to make sure that you're not mingling or said that your schoolhouses could not be built. The buildings could in no way look like the same kinds of buildings that um, white children were educated in. Like that's when you talk about a, a, a system of white supremacy um, and Jim Crow segregation, like that's the very specific language about what kind of education could take place. So these philanthropists are kind of like, well, we need workers, but how are we going to accomplish that? Um, and what they came up with was we will have these communities because we need to teach the poor black sharecropping communities um, about the, the benefits of hard work. And, and it really, again, it's very similar to some things that you'll hear today where you'll hear reformers say things like we need to teach um, poor kids of color and poor kids about grit and resilience. I'm going to tell you, having been around poor people, having grown up around poor people, poor people know more about grit and resilience <laughs> right. than any of the philanthropists know. Right. But yet, you know, because, because uh, you know, we, we often want to say that it's the, the person that's the problem as opposed to the system. We come up with stuff like back then it was self-help. Today it's grit and resilience. So then they were like, so we want to teach them grit and resilience. Um so instead of our filthy rich people, uh, instead of our building schools for them or, you know, lobbying the state governments, white supremacist state governments around how to how to uh, make sure that the states educate them. They were like, no, we will let them raise the money um, to to build schoolhouses and we'll make it a matching grant. But mm -hmm. the way that the matching grant worked um, um, was before you could get the $500 or $1,000 um, that, that you might be eligible for, you first had to raise that amount yourself. Right. Um, which there are all kinds of stories, and some of which I, I talk about in the book, of what that meant for sharecroppers and for people one generation from slavery who were literally reaching in their pockets and giving their last cent you know, for the possibility of educating kids. Of their kids so that their kids right. could have more than they had selling their livestock selling their their furniture having bake sales and um and so once your your very poor community raised this these matching funds though you you then had to identify some land that the school would be built on and often have it deeded to county officials mm. so you had to find somebody um, in these rural areas who would give you a little plot of land to build this place on. And then this is, again, before any any uh, philanthropic funds have, have been released. Often these were black churches. So a lot of um, churches and uh, schools in the South were built on church land because you could get them to give you, uh, you know, a little plot. Uh, and, and deed it in perpetuity over to county officials. Um, so it now became state land. Um, and then, but after you did that, you had to uh, purchase the materials to build the school before you still got one dime um, mm -hmm. of money from the philanthropist. Mm -hmm. 
So that took a whole other fundraising thing, or it took, you know, getting farmers to let you have lumber and, and organizing, um, you know, groups of community folks to get out there and literally chop trees down and, you know, figure out how to go in their pocket to buy concrete and all the all the things that would go into to building these schools. Um, and then after you did that, you had to figure out where the teachers and all were coming from. And at the end of that process, you 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 could get the five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars from the philanthropist. But the the what what happened across the South, two thirds of the money to build these schools came from those very poor communities themselves. Um, and just one third pretty much came from these these different um, white philanthropists. But the story, the narrative of it is consistently that these white philanthropists came and built schools for these disenfranchised folks in the South. So that's one of the stories, you know, that that, that I point out that's just kind of similar, I think, uh, in some points to today. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of what made the stories resonate so much is that um, a lot of what Sam and I talk about is this idea of really committing yourself to to the work of of uh, really meeting not letting down those families like you're describing and yet mm-hmm. doing that work within structures and systems that aren't really set up for your success and so you know I I, I want to like be proud of these communities and yet at the same time I feel like the I don't know, it's just complicated. It's complicated for me. Like I can't be fully proud because I know that the the likelihood that in all likelihood the you know I don't know. I, I guess it's I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I'm trying to draw a parallel here to to this idea of like um, that we talk about a lot, which is like, how do you like stick to with some integrity, a set of principles and yet work for, you know, what if you work for somebody like TFA, right? Like, and you're trying to make a difference for children and yet you're working for this organization that has these problems. But I think, you know, I mean, as you know, um, I, I, I actually in the book with some folks who who struggle with just that, right? Like yes. they, they were like, well, we came out of these communities, not yes. where we were separate from them, but we came out of, you know, distressed right. school systems. Mm-hmm. And we want to go back into the classroom and impact the educations of the kids who are like us because we know that we we care about them we we believe they can excel um and this is the fastest way for us to do it right. you know we don't want to go to ed school we we this this right here you know five weeks of training sign up for a master's boom um and you know they you can do some good um, half of the stories, you know, are are not in the book, but just in general, of people who feel like that. Um, if they go into public schools, in traditional public schools and traditional public systems, there's so much else that's broken, mm-hmm. so they can't do the work that they want to anyway. The turnover with principals can be high. Um, the class sizes, the lack of sort of wraparound supports and services, like they're all manner of things that cause problems. And if you go into a a charter school and, uh, you know, want to impact folks, you know, you have, depending on if you're in a high achieving, high quality, actual doing any good, which is only about a quarter um, of charter schools, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, then you run into a whole other kind of alienating, do I believe in in these strict discipline, even if it's not a no excuses, zero tolerance, still this kind of rote 
thing that has to happen. Um, for all of it, uh, I think everybody <laughs> needs to pay some attention to the people who are um, actually being impacted by this and have for generations. I mean, the, the most, um, for me at least, the, the most inspirational part of the research, the piece that I learned the most about, and the thing that I felt most shame about myself is how little I knew about the impacts that people who were outside of these big companies and organizations, how much impact they were having. Um, often kids in in their communities and on their education. Now, they weren't totally fixing everything, but they weren't bringing utopia into being. Um, but they were, they were, had been organized for decades in, in places like Philadelphia or in Newark or, um, or in even New Orleans, and it took an act of God to wash them away. You know, like <laughs> there were people in there struggling mm-hmm. um, and saying what needed to happen. And I think for many of us who are not from those communities, if we have the best of intentions or not, um, what that research taught me is how easy it is for me even to not notice, to not know, to not go seek out um, to not make it a priority to interact with the people who are doing the work that I think needs to be done. And there's no place that you're going to go where they don't exist. It's more, it's just easy to not try to find them. Right. Um, and so for organizations and, you know, that, that, uh, the, the, the board of education does not do more here in New York and elsewhere. Not, I'm not just talking about New York, but to um, make it a priority, not just to have parent town hall meetings, um, not just have big free-for-all when there's a problem, right? Like if you say you're going to close a school or cut something or what, then, you know, everybody's out. Um, but it, in a much more systematic way, talk to the people in those communities about what they think a solution mm-hmm. looks like before the crisis. Yeah. You know, before everybody's out there ready to swing at each other. Um, and I found precious few models for any of these organizations, if they're public or private, where the the people on the receiving end um, are, are where you start as you build policy. Um, I, I just I just haven't yeah. seen it by by people who are in a position to actually make a policy, um, you know, not just like, let's just hear what you think, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we're about to make a change here in educational policy. Let's start with taking seriously the people who are going to be most impacted. Ask them what solutions look like. Um, I, I think if we did more of that, I mean, I, I don't even mean it to sound Pollyanna-ish. I was just frustrated by um, how infrequent I find that kind of input to be taken seriously. Um, and again, how hard people are out here working, including kids, you know, high school kids, um, to win these battles, uh, win battle after battle, and then they they end up, you know, losing the war. Um, and it's frustrating and it's disheartening. And I believe we do need to do some things differently. I just think that we should start with folks who know the most about these issues and take what they think seriously yeah that's yeah. that's going to be pretty clear takeaway from this conversation i do want to say that um i really appreciated you alluded to and i was going to ask about it um those those narratives that you ended the book with of the the two young uh mm-hmm. teachers who who came from low-income neighborhoods i think they're both black yeah. um and they um 
Uh, they both went through TFA. They both went through TFA, and the and the care with which you took to include their narratives, and they're not simple, neat narratives at the end yeah. of the book. With, I mean, it, you, it's like yeah. I'm going to hear these people's voices, these young people's voices, and and it's it's complicated. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's not. It's, this is not an easy. This yeah. is not a wave of wand, and and yeah. on any side or any part or any perspective that makes it look like um, fixing what. Uh, what I argue in the book has been broken since the beginning. Like its DNA is warped. Like it was put together um, in a certain kind of way. But fixing that, anybody tell you I've got the solution um, is just wrong. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, state to state, community to community, the needs are not all the same. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So we we wanted to end just by asking you if there's anything else that you want to add, especially for people who are currently working in or are considering working in the education system or the public sector writ large or pu- yep public sector writ large yeah i mean again i'm i'm going to say it and say it and keep saying it um, because it was so meaningful to me. So I'm saying, like, I, I, go find the people who are in these neighborhoods that have not been set up for you to tour with um, or handpick. They're not hard to find. In the age of social media, they're really not hard to mm-hmm. find. <laughs> right. um, there's all manner of um, folks, national organizations that I've been discovering from from group groups of white parents who believe in integration and are putting their kids into low resource schools because they think that I'm not sure that this is the silver bullet however what they are they are like well but this is one privilege that my kid can um, give up and I'll bring resources to the school with this choice and it's the little bit I can do so from the thousands of people all over the country um, who are dealing with that to um, uh, the, there's educators of color. There's like a 10,000 group social media group that's just educator people who are in the ed sector. They're all of color and they all are passionate about fixing what's broken all over the country. Hashtag um, educator. Whoever is in these in these roles where you're wanting to fix it, um, talk to the people who are on the front lines. Make that as much of a priority as you do talking about scaling up stuff or you know, your teacher, educate, whatever, whatever the things that are um, hallmarks of, of what success look like to you, make engaging with, finding them and engaging with community members and, and asking them what, what you're missing. You know, they may not have the, a wand either. Not everything that comes out of their mouth is going to make any sense either. Um, but they may notice something that you're missing. And I think if we got all of these groups together, if we got all of the, the folks who um, are working in a variety of spaces and really do want to make change, and we took seriously um, figuring out what change looks like, um, and we took some of this big money potential out of it, because I really do think it's corrupting personally. Mm. Um I think that, you know, we might be at the beginnings of an actual movement around educational equity, like an actual one. But as long as who's at the table are either is split, you know, by I, I know anything about these communities, I know everything about them and not how the rest of the world works. As long as we keep these splits, these bubbles, this segregation on our part, um, hmm. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as hopeful that we'll come up with a solution. Well, we want to thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, your first of all, your book is a really important contribution to uh, 
to the effort towards educational equity and 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 the way that you frame the issue and and on this podcast you've really laid out uh for us a lot of what it means to be a radical bureaucrat i mean i can say from personal experience it is so easy to work in the bureaucracy and not look to the communities that are most yeah. impacted and so right. Right. you make yeah. a com- yeah. compelling case for why we need to do that i love so. though that term i've never heard that a radical bureaucrat you go <laughs> got the copyright <laughs> copyright paperwork uh, um, yeah thank you so much okay all right well thank y'all Hey everyone, this is Abram, and we just wanted to quickly interrupt the episode with a real-time update about how the podcast process is going. Yeah, and so this is Sam, and Abram, check it out. I met with a young colleague from another city agency, and she told me, I've been listening to your podcast, and I realized I'm a radical in denial. A radical in denial. That sounds like a good episode title. Okay, so what do you think she meant? Well, she works in the criminal legal system, and she said that she'd been trying to do everything that the system asks of her, but she wasn't being honest with herself or with others about her real aspirations for affecting change. Mm. And then this is the key. She also realized that by denying herself her radicalness, she was in essence propping up the existing system rather than pushing for real change. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. And so then did she feel some kind of way about that realization? Oh, she was energized. I mean, I'm telling you, she walked into my office and just started talking as soon as she sat down. It was a lot like um, Patrick's reaction, which we described in episode one of this season. She had so many ideas she couldn't stop. Wow, that's so cool. Um, Yeah, that's like exactly why we're doing this whole crazy project, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And that's why we're planning for season two. And everybody out there, that's why we need your help. Putting on a podcast is a lot of work. And to make this sustainable, we're going to need to pay some folks to do some of that work with us. Oh, we just hit them with the ask. Okay, so check it out. There's editing the podcast. And then we have like a whole website and a newsletter. We've got to write show notes. And then we've got to re-edit the podcast when we realize that something is different. And there's a little bit more editing to do right before we post each episode. But we have so many dreams for the podcast. And more than that, we have so many dreams for building and expanding the Radical Bureaucrat community. Hashtag Team RB. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. So here's what we've done. (laughs) We set up a PayPal button on our website at RadicalBureaucrat.com to launch our first ever fundraising effort. This will enable us to put out a second season to reach more people with even better and more content. Again, please go to RadicalBureaucrat.com and hit the PayPal button. We'd also really like to hear from you whether or not you can donate on PayPal. So what do you think we should do for future episodes? How has the podcast been resonating with you? And what else can we do to spread the word about this community and this podcast? We'd love to get these suggestions by email at info at radicalbureaucrat.com or as comments on the blog or on Twitter. We appreciate you. Yes, so much. Okay, so now let's get back to the show. So we've just gotten off the phone talking with Naliwe Rooks. I mean, what what a really important, I think, contribution that this makes to to just like kind of collecting in one place the history, right? Like seeing that like there is waves of uh, this sort of agenda to try and like dictate uh, the terms under which a large portion of our society is educated. Um, and, and that she's done it in such a concrete way is, is important. Um, yeah, any, any uh, big, big picture sort of reflections or things, questions that you're still left with? I think some of the times when what she was saying was really resonating with me was when she was describing the experience of 
young people who are going into this profession and are in their bubbles. We, we talked a lot about mm. bubbles. Yeah. And, and it was something that I could really, really relate to because I think that I've always questioned my bubbles, but I don't know what I don't know. I'm sure there's, I, of course, there are times when I haven't know, recognized when I've been in them, but I've seen the bubbles. And, I, and so for her to talk about 20-something year old kids who think they know the answer it just it really burns me in a way it it makes me angry it makes me upset it makes me it makes me sad maybe more than anything that that there are people with these huge blind spots and this this assumed knowledge and and so she really articulated what some of those blind spots are how they come to be and how people are incentivized to develop those because the people with money and power and influence around them are creating structures that encourage them to operate within blind spots. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, for one, knew all the answers when I was 20, <laughs> 22 years old. Um, yeah, uh, I, I actually, you know, one thing I've been thinking a ton about lately is just like that there is a role for everyone in in any movement or in the movement so sort of writ large um but, but like i wonder what the role of people who are sort of passionate um but sort of perhaps narrow in their bubble or their thinking or whatever like what does that role look like and how do you how do you engage right rather than simply reject a population of people uh that could contribute a lot in terms of uh, even just sort of influence and resources, um, but also in terms of like energy and passion, like like there's a lot of um, for all of for all of the shade thrown at TFA, like there's tons and tons of TFA alumni that are doing positive work and that are you know a lot of people who have a very critical lens toward their experience, uh, but who are now doing this work that they wouldn't be doing if they hadn't have gone to TFA in the first place. And so, how do we? Uh, break down our bubbles by like making room for different people. Um, although, like sometimes I feel like the people who do- don't think the way that the people in my bubble think just seem a little crazy sometimes. Like, mm. I, so like I, so like how do I? Um, I guess kind of to to a point that we come back to again and again, like live out my own values around like integration and not being separate. I think toward the end, she sort of touched on that. Like it's sort of like saying like, you know, it's really the adults that need to learn before we sort of decide how mm-hmm. to teach children. It's really the adults that need to integrate, um, you know, while we also try to figure out what to do about in, having integrated experiences for our children. Yeah. Well, you you said something, though about how do we make room for these people and to me it's about how do we reach these people how do and she even said herself like these these young people at the end of her book they did tfa because it was the they wanted to get to work it was the easiest way like the structure is ready made so you have on the one hand organizations that give you an easy access and a neat discrete set of values that you seem to sort of plug and play yes right and and massive PR machines, uh, yeah. and and it's our job to reach them and give them a different frame, a different perspective. Sure. But we're doing it through things that are like don't cost any money. You know what we should do? 
we should start a podcast <laughs> where we. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, how do we? How so? Maybe that is the question. Like, how do we not? But but I want to. I don't want to make it sound as if it like we now have the answers and we need to reach them with our answers. Right. But how do we start a genuine dialogue? And how do we start a dialogue where everybody comes at it with the kind of intellectual humility and kind of intellectual openness uh, or or honesty? Um, about our unknown unknowns, right? But when I say reach them, I, not reach them with answers, right. but reach them with her message of, hey, don't forget to, it's really important to go listen to these communities. You know, she started off by saying there's actual hostility to the idea that you should ask people right. what they need yeah. or, or what would make a difference. So just reframing some of these foundational concepts uh that that's a that's a hard road to hoe like that's moving hearts and um but I that's think, that i think that's a lot of the work i think another piece uh or sort of like maybe this is sort of like making it tactical or practical another piece would be just like uh, uh being very committed to creating space at the table for people right who who have that voice but may not have the credentialing or the or the you know the sort of polish or experiences that we typically yeah. uh, see around a table where decisions are made um, and, and and even like f- finding as difficult as it might be people who occupy both things the like well credentialed or well uh, trained uh, or experienced people who come from that background. Um, in some ways, it's a self-serving uh, takeaway because like, I feel like I'm somebody who comes from that background and has some credentials. Um, but I feel definitely that pressure, like, you know, I'm like the only one in these spaces. And like, one of the things I need to do is like create more space for people to like be in these spaces. Who don't have the same credentials that you do either. Yeah, and you've that, exactly. Right. And I think a lot of times what we do is we we overlook people and, and sort of label them as unqualified, um, but we don't really think about, well, what is the thing that we're missing at this table? Yep. And so if that person brings something that we're missing, right. then maybe what we trade off for that is this other thing that we think makes them qualified. Because we who are at the table who are highly qualified are not qualified with that thing that we're missing. Like, yep. we're not qualified. Like, I think it's a very difficult thing to like get people to do. And I'm not suggesting, you know, people will, will sort of a certain kind of person will sort of decry that as like lowering standards, right? right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things she said that that I think I I hope I'll I'll memorize is this idea that like if you think that people don't know what the problems are, have something to offer in the way of solutions, that says a lot more about you than it does about those people. Like, I, and I think the one thing that bureaucrats can often do is we'll sit around a table and talk about solutions and, and we really don't have anyone at the table that represents those voices. So like, how do we lift the value of that knowledge, perhaps indigenous knowledge is a way of referring mm-hmm. to that, um, and l- allow that to drive a definition of qualified. Right. Yeah. And being a little specific about, first of all, we talk about metaphors on this podcast. The table keeps coming back. That's mm-hmm. one of our big ones. Yeah. But but when we talk about who should be at the table, you know, when when there are conferences, I think 
it's it's a common practice now to make sure that you don't have all white people, although that mistake is often made. But a lot of people recognize that's not a good idea to have all white people on a panel or all men on a panel. It doesn't stop it from happening. It still no, it doesn't all happen. The time. It still happens. And that's kind of the base level. What we're talking about here is you can have a person of color, you can have a woman on the panel, but you still may not have somebody who's yeah, they still... they were all filtered by admissions teams, to her point. Right, right, right exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so... Um, they may not, and even if they grew up in a low-income neighborhood, we're not necessarily talking to the parents of students or the right. students themselves or the teachers even who are teaching in those schools right now. Yeah. So. I think it was Zora Neale Hurston who said, all my skin folk are not my kin folk. <laughs> was um, that her? Yeah, that's, that's where that comes from. Um, and, and, you know, that's not to throw any shade at any particular person, no. but the truth is, like, we all figure out what our bargain is. And I think some of us, in order to access power, perhaps more quickly or efficiently, um, trade off some of some of that legitimacy or or like connection to that sort of voice of the community. Um, I mean, I think it's a good start to get skin folk at the table like <laughs> let's let's start there yeah of course but and like as you increase representation as you increase genuine equity diversity and inclusion i think you'll start to hear more of those kinds of voices but also let's just like um not hold the meeting unless we can have like a parent or a community member there, right. right like let's just like wait another week until we can find somebody um, you know, uh, we don't necessarily have to hire a parent, but like, let's maybe hold a meeting with them. Right. Um, so let's end like good radicals. Uh, what is one thing you learned today that you can use to create a more just and equitable world, Abram? I don't know if I'm going to take yours, but I think I should, I should probably do the one that she repeated a thousand times, <laughs> which is like talk to the community, <laughs> right? Right. Like, and, and even perhaps more pointedly than that, begin your change process by talking to the community. Um, and I think, you know, she's right. There are people who are doing great work that are talking with the community, but they often don't have power. Yeah. They're trying to generate power by talking to the community and sort of setting up a set of um, uh, demands or requests, whatever mm. you want to call them, um, an agenda. Um, but as people who have some amount of sort of power or authority as bureaucrats, we should probably see if we can start our process, our change process, by bringing together some panel of people who represent voices of the community. It's something I've been thinking about a lot as well. So I have the same takeaway. I don't know how no, we you could have ha to have a different one. No, how could we? How, how could we have any other takeaway? <laughs> like, She's um, a, she was a good professor in that way. She gave us a yeah. very clear takeaway. She, she she gave it at the beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Um, but you know, I work in this space of educational reentry, and something that gets talked a lot about when you're talking about criminal justice reform is the barriers to people who were formerly incarcerated to participating in these conversations because they are not mm. allowed to gain these credentials and, and enter into these, like literally like you're not allowed to come into a school if you have, you know, you can't be a volunteer if you have, if a, you record have a record and yeah. things like that. So I've been thinking a lot about this, and there's a, a term now uh, called credible messengers that talks oh, about yeah. um, folks who've been through the system and can speak credibly to their experiences. This is a restorative justice thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's connected, yep. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about uh, how to bring credible messengers in and, and how when we look at 
you know, we still, it's, uh, it's going to forever be a struggle, but how do you transition a student back to school? And we're looking at our systems and trying to figure out how to do this more effectively. And we haven't asked enough. Uh, of the people who are most impacted how mm. can we do this better so so that's my takeaway in, in a very concrete way in which i want to bring it to my work all right and finally we should end by being good bureaucrats the views expressed here are our personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency policy party leader or really anyone besides the two of us and maybe you or maybe not This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thank you.